Good morning. I am Eugene Meyer, president of the Federal Society, and thank you for tuning in to our 39th National Symposium. Uh, unfortunately, this is the first symposium we've had that has not been uh, in, in person uh, uh, due, due to the virus. Um, and we're, 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 we're disappointed that the 500 registrants will miss a wonderful opportunity. But nonetheless, we think that these panels uh, that will run between now and uh, about uh, 5 or 5.30 tonight will provide the same intellectual excitement that our conferences usually do, albeit uh, minus the in-person camaraderie. And before beginning our program, I want to express my, my thanks and deep appreciation to Adam Steinbiller, uh, our chapter president, and Kelly Mayshore, uh, our, uh, Adam's actually the, the uh, symposium coordinator, and Kelly is, is, is the chapter president, and the rest of the symposium committee at the University of Michigan Law School for their hard work. They did as good a job as any group has ever done. Uh, everything was beautifully set up, and I really, really feel bad that we, we can't, can't do this in person. And I also want to thank the administration of the University of Michigan Law School, including the Dean, Mark West, for their support of the symposium. Um, uh, but uh, I just wanted to express those thank yous. Um, our first panel is going to be on the compact clause. And I want to stress for all, all our viewers, and I'll stress this again after the questions, that uh, if you'd like to ask a question, you can do so by commenting on the YouTube or Facebook live streams with your first name, school, and question. Your questions will be given to me, and I will I will ask them for you. Um, so, the compact clause has received extra attention recently because of the Electoral College and the proposed state compact concerning the popular vote. But that is far from the only use of the compact clause. There are currently 200 active interstate compacts, ranging from the significant to the almost trivial. The environment is one major area where compacts are frequent. What can compacts properly cover? When are they constitutionally forbidden? When permitted, when do they promote good public policy? And what are the dangers posed by their use? Um, we have a very good panel uh, for this with some of, some of our, the leading experts in the country. And I should add that, uh, our professor Bushbaum from Michigan, unfortunately, cannot make the panel because he has come down not with the coronavirus, but with the, with the old-fashioned flu, as best I can tell. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and one of our participants, Professor Hills, is absolutely here and going to be participating, but he is not going to be he's not going to be visible. He's going to be a disembodied voice, but his deep expertise in the world of federalism will make up for that. Um, so we have professors Grieva, Adler, and, and Hills. I will introduce them just before they speak, and we're going to be starting out uh, with uh, Prof Professor Grieva. Uh, he has been, um, he's currently a professor at, uh, the, at George Mason University of the Yen and Scalia Law School. Uh, he, PhD from Cornell. Uh, he has written, um, not, is author of nine books. Uh, and has been a very, very active participant in many, many discussions and panels, but also uh, one of the leading scholars in, 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 in the area of federalism and uh, uh, author of the Upside Down Constitution, among other things. Um, without further ado, Professor Grieva. Uh, thanks, Gene, and uh, thanks for um, hosting this as 
Um, I have to say, this is very awkward for me. I hope this works reasonably well. I just hate all technology. I don't have a smartphone. I don't have a dumb phone. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I don't tweet, Twitter, twerk, twaddle, whatever you people do. So this is very unusual for me. Um, and I'm just doing this because Gene Meyer himself asked me to. Um, it, the way we've divvied this up is I'm supposed to say a few words about the sort of constitutional structure and the way the uh, compact clause. Are we okay? Yeah. Gene? Yeah. Sorry, you were moving around. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I'll let you move around. Um, so I'm supposed to say a few words about uh, the uh, the compact clause and how it fits into the uh, constitutional structure of what it was supposed to be doing, uh, what it might still be doing um, today. So I suppose the first thing I should say to my mind in approaching this, one doesn't want to think about this like a conventional original list and ask what exactly did the founders mean by compact or agreement. I'm, I suppose the, nowadays in originalism, we're supposed to um, approach this by way of corpus linguistics, which sounds like something Harvey Weinstein might do in an unguarded moment. Um, I think the way to approach this is to ask, what exactly is the constitutional or institutional problem to which this clause is supposed to be the answer? And then to ask briefly whether it might still matter. Um, it, it's an underestimated clause to my mind. I mean, in preparation for this, I looked through some of the con law textbooks um, that, I, that I've used in the past for, for teaching con law one, uh, including one very famous, widely used textbook that promises us to march us through the Constitution, one grim clause after another. And once you get to Article 1, Section 10, which is uh, the home of the Compact Clause, among other things, um, there's not a word about it. Um, and so I'll try to say a little bit about how the, the clause fits, fits into the um, universe. Uh, the first thing to, to notice is that, well, it says that uh, states cannot have are prohibited from entering any compact or agreement with one another or a foreign nation without the consent of the Congress. And that clause is structurally conspicuously at odds with the rest of the structure of the Constitution because the normal arrangement, of course, is that Congress um, can act um, within its limited and enumerated powers. Um, laws enacted pursuant to the Constitution are the supreme law of the land, so states can't mess uh, with them, but within those limits and and a, uh, a handful of um, constitutional prohibitions, states are generally free uh, to do as they wish, whereas uh, the Compact Clause envisions that they need advance approval from Congress. Why is that? And the answer is um, the Compact Clause, along with other provisions uh, of Article 1, Section 10, are sort of a leftover piece of Madisonianism in the Constitution. Um, uh, when Madison arrived at the convention, his position was that no state law of any description should be allowed to go into force and effect without the consent 
of the Congress. He advanced that not just in the uh, in in his original plan, but three times at the convention. Um, the last time was some, sometime in, in late August, believe it or not, until um, several of the delegates who uh, asked him to kindly cut it out and be done with it because the convention had already made the decision in favor of the supremacy clause arrangement. Why was he so insistent on that? And the answer is that he had a morbid fear of faction, factionalism. And if you read Federalist 10, um, that's basically an argument for abolishing states altogether because they would be uh, run as they have been in the past um, by rapacious factions. The delegates never completely understood that, I think. Um, and so what they did instead was to, well, adopt the supremacy clause arrangement that we all know. But for certain kinds of state acts, mostly those with uh, pronounced external effects. Um, they kept the Madisonian arrangement, that is to say, congressional approval would be required. And so what the Constitution eventually says is that states cannot make any treaty um, at all, period, even with congressional approval, but that compacts or, or agreements among states or with foreign nations require congressional pre-approval. Never really seriously enforced, but there you have it. Um, and so the compact clause um, um, appears right next to clauses that likewise deal with um, state actions that are deeply problematic from a federalism perspective, um, keeping standing armies, um, tariffs, debt or relief laws, paper money, that kind of thing. Um, this was very, the, the danger of um, state compacts were very, very vivid uh, to the framers. There was a real fear that states might uh, enter into alliances with, an, uh, with one another and uh, to the detriment of sister states. And so that's why the compact clause is there. There was a real fear that the country might break up into alliances. Um, so that was vivid to them then. Uh, should it be uh, a concern uh, for us now, should we try to enforce the congressional consent requirement? Well, maybe not if you think that sort of state-to-state uh, -state disputes um, are either um, trivial or that they can be handled and managed by Congress in the ordinary fashion, that is to say by preemptive legislation. Um, but maybe if you think um, that sectionalism continues to be an enduring feature of American politics and state-to-state -state, um, disputes uh, might take a serious form, you may want to sort of consider whether the compact clause might not have a um, role to play, right? So the, the divisions between red and blue states now are very, very acute. Um, I think there's a real argument uh, to the effect that red states really don't have any option except to um, gang up and collude against more competitive, more productive um, red states that have the nerve to produce stuff like energy. And so maybe if you look at the constitutional landscape from that vantage, the compact clause might 
uh, still have some role to play. And it's an unfortunately under-enforced constitutional clause. And I'll end there. Jean, I can't hear you at all. That was because I didn't unmute myself. Let that be a lesson to others. Now I can hear you. <laughs> uh, so uh, I was going to say uh, that you were not you were not uh, hindered by the uh, by the format and the way you, the, the way you thought you would be. I appreciate very much your comments. Um, our next speaker is going to be Professor uh, Rick Hills, uh, who teaches at NYU Law School, and he's one of the foremost uh, scholars on federalism and sort of problems of decentralization um, in the in the country. Uh, he has a distinguished background, including having taught at the at, at, uh, at Michigan Law School for several years, um, and uh, law, law degree from Yale and clerk for Judge Higginbotham on the Fifth Circuit. Um, and I, you know, this, this panel is very well suited to him because the, uh, the, whole, the whole question of compact clauses have this interesting relationship with, with, with federalism uh, to start with. So, uh, and Professor Hills, as I may have mentioned at the beginning, but a couple of you may not have been on yet, is going to, I'm, have to be a disembodied voice, but I don't think the voice will be any less clear for being disembodied. Professor Hills? Hi there, Gene. Thank you so much. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. We can. Yep, Excellent. all good. Okay. Um, well, this is such a pleasure. Um, it's great to see Jonathan, Michael, and Gene. Um, I think that I've made my um, Federalist Society career speaking right after Michael and contradicting him. It's terrible. Uh, I think we should be a vaudeville act. Um, but in any case, um, I want to say a few words, some sounding in law and some sounding in policy, about why I think the compact clause should continue to be, as it has always been, roundly ignored um, by all relevant constitutional actors. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't acknowledge that it's in the Constitution but we should treat it as a non-justiciable part of the Constitution, much like the guarantee clause of Article 4. As you know, the Constitution guarantees to each state a Republican form of government, and as you know, the United States is supposed to enforce that provision. As I'm sure you know, it has always been regarded as non-justiciable. It has never been directly enforced by anyone, not even Congress, really. Um, and that's just as well. Now, I want to say exactly the same considerations should apply to the compact clause. I have some legalistic reasons why I think it's perfectly reasonable to construe the con compact clause as being non-justiciable and having very narrow scope. But my main reasons will sound in policy. So what I'll do in just a few minutes is explain um, the legal reasons why I think it's reasonable to construe it narrowly, and then the policy reasons why I think it would be a good idea to construe it narrowly. Um, the legal reasons will sound in the usual modalities of constitutional interpretation, um, text, original understanding, and precedent. Um, and the policy reasons will sound in terms of the costs and benefits of preventing subnational policy making. Okay, so on the legalistic reasons, let's start with the text. The text refers to compacts or contracts. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say 
that coordination among states does not amount to a compact or contract unless it has an enforcement mechanism, such as formal international law or formal contract dispute resolution techniques like, say, litigation before the Supreme Court sitting in original jurisdiction. Without that enforcement mechanism, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that coordination simply amounts to coordination. That's actually a narrower view of the compact clause than has been taken by the U.S. Supreme Court, um, but I think it amounts to the same thing. It will mean that the clause will never be enforced, and a good thing. Now you might say, oh, well, why is that a good thing? Aren't we define the original understanding of the Constitution? Well, that's my second legal reason. I think the compact clause was added as an afterthought, basically to take care of the worries expressed in Federalist Number 5. This is one of the essays by Jay, an underestimated writer um, of the Publius Trio. And Jay says, look, you know, there's a huge danger that the states will break into confederations that will ally themselves with a foreign power. And we don't want that to happen. So we should ratify this constitution. And this was indeed a big worry. The idea was that the South might ally with France or Spain, the West might ally with Spain, New England might ally with England, and the United States would basically consist of three or four puppet states, all of which would be really controlled by Europe. Um, and that was genuinely a worry in the late 18th century because the United States was militarily weak, access to the Mississippi was difficult, um, and failure of union or a weak union under the Articles of Confederation would naturally invite um, each state to fend for itself by making immediate alliances with a few of its neighbors. If you read the Compact Clause in context, it's all about war, ships, treaties, armies. It's all about the states basically acting as sovereign nations by making alliances with each other and other nations, probably for defense purposes. That worry immediately evaporates with the ratification of the Constitution. If it lingers on, it dies in 1814 with the Hartford Convention during the War of 1812. New England did briefly try to form a confederation um, to negotiate a separate peace with England. It was basically treasonous. Um, after Andrew Jackson wins the Battle of New Orleans, the Federalists of New England are in disgrace. Never since then has anybody worried about a bunch of states getting together to form a confederation and an alliance with a foreign power. So my basic idea is that this text was added to deal with a problem that quickly became obsolete. There's no reason why you should invent new problems for the text to address. In particular, I don't see a word or a breath in the 18th century of a worry that subgroups of states will form cartels that will inefficiently restrict the supply of goods and services or beat up on other states. That just wasn't a worry that I see anywhere in the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution, which is, if you're listening at home, a really great source because it's text searchable um, and maintained by the University of Wisconsin. So any of your students, if you're listening, um, you can ignore everything I say except for this, make your way to the DHRC and just have some fun with it. It's the largest compendium of texts associated with the ratification of the Constitution. Before I got on here, I said, I should look up to see if there was anything said about the compact clause. Almost nothing was said. 
And to the extent that any worries were expressed, it was all these worries about alliances with foreign powers that today would be treasonous. I don't see any 18th century reason why we should take this clause seriously. This leads to precedent. Um, the pre clause has never been taken seriously for the simple reason that to take it seriously is to invite absurdity. As Justice Field said in Virginia versus Tennessee, it would be the height of absurdity to say states can't make deals with other states without going to Congress. Let me give you a reason why, and why Justice Field would certainly feel this way in the 1890s. States were litigating against each other constantly, invoking the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court in the 1890s. The reason is usually interstate externality is like pollution. So for instance, Tennessee um, was polluting with acid rain from copper smelters northern Georgia. And in some of the great turn of the century original jurisdiction cases, Oliver Wendell Holmes held um, that a case called Tennessee Copper Company versus Georgia, um, that um, Georgia could get a injunction against this kind of pollution. Now, note that any kind of litigation is often going to end with settlement. Indeed, we'd hope this sort of litigation would be a preface to settlement. But are we going to say that each consent decree is going to have to be ratified by Congress? It'll unbelievably complicate negotiations between the states. And states are constantly talking to each other. The University of Michigan might make a deal with the University of Ohio to arrange a football game. Are we really going to say it has to go to Congress? Well, of course not. That would be, as Justice Field said, the height of absurdity. But as soon as we realize that states are simply corporations that must make dozens of deals, many of which will be with cities and states, drawing a line between the bad compacts and the good compacts leads you down a path of chaos. So for reasons of precedent, the court has never taken this clause seriously. Its 1978 opinion about the multi-state tax compact held that these compacts never violate the compact clause unless they interfere in some special, unspecified, mystical way with Congress's national supremacy. Nobody quite knows what that means, and I just assume not find out. The most important thing to understand is that the court has never, ever enforced the compact clause. So as a matter of precedent, in addition to original understanding and text, it makes sense for the compact clause to stay interred. Now that brings me to policy. I've spoken for eight minutes and 35 seconds, which is just plenty. Policy will not take us long. I have three policy reasons. Two relating to the dangers, alleged dangers, of interstate compacts, and one relating to the costs of getting rid of them. I think Michael is right that in theory, an interstate compact could lead a group of states to impose costs on other states. But the reason why I just don't take that worry that seriously today is entirely practical. The executive branch, through its agencies, has more than enough resources to act quickly and expeditiously to get rid of state compacts that the executive branch believes interferes with any actual federal policy. There are a lot of federal statutes out there from the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act to the um, um, deregulation of trucking statutes, the FAAA. Um, if the feds believe that some group of states are somehow undermining an actual federal policy, the president can act very swiftly. If the president does not act, the Supreme Court can act under a bevy of doctrines that enforce unwritten, made-up judicial principles of nationalism, like the Dormant Commerce Clause or Jernig's and Garamendi's 
foreign policy dormant clause. Um, and the court has, in the, in, on occasion, invoked these doctrines to prevent, for instance, California from creating its own Holocaust compensation system that seemed inconsistent with the compensation system that had been negotiated by Bill Clinton with Germany in the 1990s. So given that both the court and the president can act quickly to protect national supremacy, I really don't see why we need this extra compact clause thing to say that the states need to queue up before Congress to get compacts that, uh, approved. Um, I especially don't think, think that's a danger for a third reason. Aside from the safeguard of the presidency and aside from the safeguard of the court, the costs of subnational inaction in an age of polarization are just disastrous. Right now, we are living through a time in which the federal government is essentially dysfunctional. I cast no aspersions on either party, either region, part of the nation, red or blue. I think we just need to recognize that polarization has led to terminal gridlock. Anytime that you queue up an issue before Congress, you can expect that for reasons utterly unrelated to the merits of that issue, nothing will happen. And nothing is no longer acceptable in a world in which we need policymaking. And so it seems to me that we should simply switch the default rule. If Congress and the president, or the president alone, or the court alone, thinks that what the states are doing is undermining foreign policy or some important national policy, then let them intervene and let them make a case if there's a national policy that's at risk because of what the states are doing. Um, but I don't think the coordination among the states, coordination that's not enforceable through any formal legal means, should ever be an additional reason to strike down what the states have done. That's 11 minutes and 45 seconds, and I'll end there. Thank you, Rick. Uh, appreciate it. Um, and the, our, our, our third panelist is Jonathan Adler from Case Western Law School. Uh, he's also the author of seven books, um, including Business in the Roberts Court, uh, and done a lot of work in the environmental area. Uh, uh, per, uh, Professor Adler has been uh, you know, a long time involved with uh, with the Federal Society, he clerked for Judge Santel in the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, um, uh, and before his degree from uh, George Mason Law School, he uh, graduated magna from Yale College, um, and uh, had, we look forward to his presentation. Uh, Jonathan? Great. Good morning. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, even if it's virtually. Uh, from my home office. I, I want to start um, just um, where where Rick ended uh, before talking uh, in, in, to some length or in some degree about how a compacts clause apply and could apply in the context of environmental policy. Uh, but to start where Rick ended on the point that if the federal government is concerned that state compacts are interfering with federal policy or a problem, they can just intervene. It is worth noting, and I will uh, I will talk about this more at the end of my remarks, that just this past Thursday, a federal district court uh, in uh, California uh, ruled against uh, the Justice Department uh, in a suit where the Justice Department uh, claims that California, uh, by entering into a compact uh, with foreign provinces, uh, is violating uh, the Foreign Compact Clause, which has the same requirements and structure uh, as the Interstate Compact Clause. And so we actually currently have a live example uh, where 
uh, the federal government and the executive branch in particular believe that a state is engaged in the sort of agreement that implicates uh, federal concerns and federal policy uh, and is trying to intervene. And under the permissive doctrine uh, that we certainly have with regard to the compact clause, uh, federal district court has said, uh, too bad. Um, if California wants to enter into agreements related to climate change with Quebec or Ontario or whomever, um, there's not much the federal government can do about that. And whether or not that's a good or bad idea, we can we can get to. But I do think it's worth noting that that uh, I, current doctrine, uh, I don't think, allows for the type of intervention uh, that uh, Rick envisions. Uh, but let me uh, uh, now say a little bit about compacts in the context of environmental policy, uh, because I think that compacts, at least in theory, uh, are something that could play an important role in addressing many sorts of environmental problems. Uh, particularly those problems that don't tend to correspond with state boundaries. We have states, they are part of our constitutional structure. Uh, in some cases, those boundaries make some environmental sense. In some cases, those boundaries uh, are completely arbitrary. Uh, and because environmental concerns, whether we're talking about the placement of resources or the migration of pollution, uh, don't respect those boundaries, relying solely upon state governments to deal with environmental problems means we are unlikely to be able to deal effectively with transboundary problems, whether it's shared resources like, say, the Great Lakes or uh, the migration of pollution, pollution spillovers from one jurisdiction to another. At the same time, relying exclusively on the federal government to deal with environmental problems has its own drawbacks. Uh, many environmental problems, in fact, most of the environmental problems that our existing environmental statutes deal with are local or regional in nature. Uh, there are some that are arguably global, climate change certainly being one, uh, but there aren't many that we would actually identify as national. Uh, that is to say, whatever the drawbacks are of having state level uh, control of environmental concerns, it's not clear that for most environmental problems, dealing with them at the national level, uh, is an improvement. Uh, and even when we're talking about regionalized problems, problems that encompass more than one state, uh, they are still regionalized. The reality is the sorts of environmental problems, whether we're talking about air quality or water quality, that implicate the Great Lakes region where I am are quite different than those that, say, implicate the southwestern United States. Uh, our air pollution problems here are different than they are in, say, Phoenix. Uh, our water issues are different than they are uh, in Maricopa County. Uh, it's a much wetter uh, and regionally, or, or much wetter climate here, a much more temperature variation, temperature variation that affects things like the age of the automobile fleet. It affects the way uh, compounds interact in the air and the extent to which they create forms of pollution that can implicate human health and so on. Now, further, uh, there's a large number of environmental problems that are wholly contained within state boundaries, drinking water, abandoned waste sites, and the like, uh, for which our rush to nationalize uh, these uh, nationalized policy with regard to these, to these problems has not been uh, particularly beneficial. So you know, compacts could play a very useful role in supplementing states' abilities to deal with environmental problems, uh, just as uh, neighboring landowners that say uh, both adjoin a creek uh, or that share some resource or that 
may be engaged in conflicting land uses, can engage in cosian bargaining to resolve their disputes. We would expect states and perhaps one states to do something similar. And if you look historically, there in fact is a long history of states uh, using compacts to deal with transboundary problems, particularly with regard to shared resources. We see a lot of compacts dealing with uh, lakes, with water bodies, with rivers and the like. Um, and we've seen in areas like, like Tahoe, Great Lakes, Chesapeake Bay region, compacts playing an important role. And if one looks at the original jurisdiction of the US Supreme Court, one actually sees that a, a large percentage of those cases involve disputes arising under interstate compacts concerning, uh, for example, the allocation of water resources. A large percentage of those cases these days uh, involve water resources. What you don't see, though, is you don't see many interstate compacts uh, being entered into or enforced with regard to pollution problems. Uh, and one reason for that is because federal environmental law has displaced the use of compacts uh, under uh, a long line of cases uh, where the federal government enacts pollution control statutes that deal with transboundary pollution, whether those statutes are effective or, or are not effective. The Supreme Court has held that any federal common law remedy states might have is displaced. And the reason that matters for the compacts clause is that if there's no binding legal rule in the background against which states negotiate, that no legal binding rule that provides the background for cosian bargaining, we're much less likely to get the sort of cosian bargaining uh, that we would like. Ohio is much less likely to negotiate with New York over the fact that we have power plants in Ohio that send pollution to New York, that if New York has no remedy against Ohio other than going to the federal government. And what this means is that we leave a lot of downwind and downstream states at the mercy of our federal statutory framework, which isn't very focused on interstate pollution, and at the mercy of an EPA willing to enforce those provisions. And that's, I would argue, suboptimal in many respects, because the federal statutes often don't uh, adopt policies that are optimal for varying regions of the country. The one-size-fits-all approach to environmental policy embodied in many of our federal statutes in practice is a one-size-fits-nobody, or at best, we have provisions that are designed to uh, solve the problems of a particular portion of the country, uh, but not the nation as a whole and are a poor fit for other parts of the country. And further, as I already mentioned, very few provisions of our federal environmental statutes actually target the sort of interstate concerns uh, that uh, we would want compacts to help uh, address. So the compacts clause ideally uh, would be a way for uh, Congress to ratify agreements that states would have uh, to deal with these sorts of problems, but states aren't entering into these agreements because federal legislation has displaced uh, the background legal rules against which states would enter into such agreements. All that said, we are beginning to see uh, a new set of agreements dealing with environmental concerns. Uh, and I mentioned one of those at the beginning of my remarks, uh, agreements relating uh, to climate change. California in particular uh, has entered into agreements for what are called cap and trade programs. These are programs where uh, states cap the level of emissions of a particular pollutant and then allocate credits uh, for those emissions among uh, firms, and then firms can buy and sell those credits to meet their obligations. Uh, in a desire to 
reduce the costs of obtaining credits. Uh, states have entered into regional agreements with other states uh, for these programs. There's one in the Northeast called Reggie, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Uh, and there's one that California is involved in with some Canadian provinces called the Western Climate Initiative. And these agreements enable trading of greenhouse gas emission credits across state lines. There certainly are benefits to these programs. Uh, they reduce the costs of compliance. They can potentially reduce the costs of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they also may spur some degree of innovation in trying to find uh, new ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And insofar as the trading program allows for uh, firms to innovate in ways of identifying uh, possible credits for reducing emissions, they can play a salutary role in helping deal with uh, climate change policy. And insofar as the federal government has been, shall we say, uh, less than aggressive in trying to address climate change, um, uh, these state initiatives, uh, from a policy standpoint, could be beneficial as well. Uh, but in my view, insofar as these agreements create legally binding commitments that states must observe, uh, they are compacts that should be treated as such by the compact clause. That is to say, insofar as firms in California are affected by uh, the recognition of credits uh, that are obtained from, say, Quebec, uh, then that is a legal obligation uh, that California is imposing uh, that should be subject to the compact clause's uh, requirements uh, because the relative costs that firms face uh, in complying with the cap-and-trade program is in part going to be a function of whether or not other jurisdictions are participating. Now, as I mentioned, uh, the Trump administration um, uh, has challenged the constitutionality of the Western Climate Initiative. Uh, they filed a suit um, in federal district court uh, last year. Uh, their primary focus is on the foreign aspect of this because this not only allows a compact clause challenge, uh, it also allows a foreign affairs clause and treaty clause challenge. Uh, but as I mentioned on Thursday, a federal district court rejected uh, the Justice Department's case not only on the treaty clause claim, but also on the compact clause claim, uh, adopting what um, uh, I think our, the prior speakers identified as a fairly lax understanding of uh, what the compact clause's limitations are. Uh, the district court concluded that uh, because it is so easy for jurisdictions to withdraw from the Western Climate Initiative, and in its view, it, this does not pose a threat to other states, or to the federal government's ability to set policy, uh, that this should not be a compact that requires congressional ratification. I think one problem with this decision, and perhaps with the current jurisprudence, is that it does, in effect, allow California uh, to, if not supplant, certainly subvert federal policy with regard to climate change. Now, I will confess, I actually probably prefer California's approach to climate change than I do to the federal government's current approach to climate change. Uh, but from a constitutional standpoint, uh, I do think it's problematic that California, by entering into agreements with other states or with foreign provinces, uh, can subvert what should be uh, a policy that is, at least as an initial matter, in the hands uh, of the federal government. Uh, states creating rival uh, climate policy uh, is not something that I think the Compact Clause uh, uh, should allow. Uh, but that said, uh, given the current lax standards uh, that we see courts having applied, uh, it's possible that the district court's decision uh, might be correct under current doctrine 
and we'll see if it gets upheld uh, on appeal. And on that note, uh, I will stop. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Jonathan. Um, uh, we will be going to questions in, in, in a bit. And once again, if you want to ask a question, uh, if the audience wants to ask a question, you can do so by commenting on the, U on the YouTube or Facebook live streams with your first name, school, and question. Um, uh, and and I, I, I will, I will read, read, read questions. Um, uh, but first, I want to ask for reactions to um, uh, what, what, what other panelists have said um, uh, in order of the uh, Professor Greva. But uh, uh, I would imagine that uh, Professor Hills has some reactions to Professor Adler. So uh, you can go in whichever order you want to go. Should I just start? Yeah, you can start. Okay. Um, look, I, I want to stress one point of agreement with Rick. Um, if you look at the text of the compact clause, any compact or agreement, that can't be right, right? Because then you run into the um, obvious problems. I mean, two governors having breakfast, that's an agreement, uh, but that cannot possibly require congressional consent. I get it. So what you need is some sort of coherent theory that tells you what exactly falls under the clause and um, what doesn't. Uh, I suspect that Rick's criterion, that is to say enforce enforceable obligations, um, is about right, um, depending on um, how exactly one understands it. Uh, I agree with Jonathan that um, the California um, agreement with Canadian provinces is deeply problematic, and I sincerely hope Jeff Clark will appeal that case and hopefully win. Um, but even you know, even if you look uh, at existing compacts um, uh, uh, through. Uh, Rick's lens of enforceability, there are in fact unapproved compacts out there uh, that fall under that um, description. Uh, Jonathan mentioned um, the, the climate change agreements, uh, the master settlement on tobacco litigation uh, concluded in 1998, that is manifestly an enforceable compact. It comes with its own enforcement machinery and all the rest of it. I want to say one thing about the um, the legal landscape. So Rick's argument is that now, look, first, the executive has all sorts of ways of um, stopping unwarranted uh, interferences with um, um, federal law. Uh, I would rather have Congress play some role. I get Rick's despair. And I shared, I mean, of the United States Congress. But sooner or later, we're going to have to have Congress get back into the action and into the policy mix uh, and get away from the excessively executive dominated universe in which we're currently living. And with respect to legal um, bars against state compacts, um, it's worth noting, uh, and I think that you guys have a panel later, right, about horizontal federalism. Um, relations. Uh, I just want to mention uh, most of the protections that are written into the Constitution, and they don't just deal with war, they also deal with trade matters and so forth, are effectively unenforceable. So the contract clause is unenforceable in its um, 
in its even in its core domain. The full faith and credit clause is effectively unenforceable with respect to public acts. The privileges and immunities clause does not apply to or does not cover and protect corporations, at least as it's understood. And the dormant commerce clause uh, is gravely endangered, especially by this court. Um, there are now four votes, I think, on the court to effectively get rid of it or severely, severely uh, con constrict it. Um, and Rick mentioned the Garamendi case. Um, th that was a five to four decision, highly doubtful to my mind, because the preemptive effect there comes from a letter that Stu Eisenstadt sent to some Swiss officials. Uh, and I really, really doubt that that case would be decided in the same way uh, if it were um, if it were to come up um, now. And so many of the sort of horizontal federalism protections have fallen by the wayside. And the question is whether one thinks that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I am a little more nervous about interstate harms than Rick is, but that's sort of the, the larger universe to my mind. Rick? Oh, great, thanks. You guys can hear me, right? Absolutely. You know, I'm amazed by technology. So am I. <laughs> um, um, what, very thoughtful remarks from Jonathan and Michael. Thank you both. Um, I just want to say two things quickly um, in response to um, Jonathan. Jonathan. Jonathan notes that Judge Shubb, I think it was Shubb, upheld California's um, regional greenhouse gas initiative, compact, or I shouldn't say compact, let's call it coordination policy. Um, saying it was not a compact, and he cites that as an example of the inability of the federal government to stop policy. I really want to emphasize something that I might not have been clear enough. I say that the executive and the Supreme Court can stop state policies if they have a federal policy. That's called preemption. So the Trump administration, if they can find some rule or adjudication, or God help us, a statutory provision that's somehow inconsistent with what California has done, of course they can set it aside. Now, if they cannot, if there is zero federal policy that conflicts with what California has done, then of course neither the Supreme Court nor the President can stop California. But that's as it should be. It shouldn't be the case that the President can walk in and say, I don't like what you're doing, and when the state says, well, why? The president says, can't tell you, don't have a policy. And so I don't think that preemption should take place simply to create a vacuum in which no articulated national policy has ever been announced. And I would say it has to be announced in some kind of document that has force of law. In this respect, I follow the Supreme Court's Breyer's opinion in Merck versus Albrecht, which deals with preemption by the FDA of um, state tort law. Now there's a federal agency that simply by promulgating a rule through notice and comment could set aside any amount of tort law holding pharmaceutical companies liable for violating various state imposed standards of care. But the first thing you gotta do is have a policy. If you don't have a policy, you don't get preemption, just plain and simple. So if the Trump administration announces some kind of specific stance that they're taking with regard to international greenhouse gases, that is somehow being frustrated by what California is doing, then they can simply have a Garamendi, Jernig, Crosby style preemption case. The thing is that Trump administration has no such policy. It's really remarkable. 
Um, they pull out of the Paris Accord, but they replace it with nothing, and they don't even have a strong negotiating stance about precisely what they want to get that they can't get because California has done something. So no, of course, the Trump administration does and should lose before Judge Shub because they have not explained how California is doing something that will undermine the federal government's negotiating position. Second point is whether the RGGI is enforceable in some sense. And Jonathan said something that I, I kind of disagree with. Um, he said, well, look, um, California is looking at extraterritorial facts, namely what a company does in Quebec, um, and using that as a basis for regulating cap and trade in California. And that shows that the RGGI is enforceable. Well. That's not exactly what I mean by enforceability. The fact that domestic legislation of some state looks abroad at the existence of some extraterritorial facts to determine the legal effect of some action within the state under state law doesn't mean that the agreement that makes that extraterritorial fact relevant is somehow enforceable. To be enforceable, the counterparty would have to be able to bring an action, perhaps before the International Court of Justice or some other you know, transnational tribunal, and get some kind of remedy, like say injunction, mandamus, declaratory judgment. As long as Quebec cannot do that, and Quebec cannot do that, I don't regard the RGGI, WCI deals um, as WC, um, as um, enforceable. It's true that if you take extraterritorial facts into, exist, into account in your domestic laws, the Supreme Court will some, sometimes say, like in Brown, Foreman, Distillers, which was what, was, what year was that? I can't remember. It was that New York liquor case in which New York took into account the price of liquor in neighboring states in deciding how liquor could be sold in New York. Sometimes the Supreme Court will say, well, that's illegal because it means you're regulating extraterritorially. And there's this funny doctrine dating way back to Baldwin versus Selig, Selig, and that old, um, those poison pill cases, you know, like Edgar versus MITE, in which the court will sometimes say, oh, a state cannot take into account facts abroad, facts outside the state, in determining how to regulate within the state. And I understand that doctrine, I disagree with it, and I wish it was gone, um, but that has nothing to do with enforceability of an interstate compact. And so I do not believe that the RGGI is enforceable in any meaningful sense, in a sense that would trigger the kinds of concerns that led to the enactment of the Compact Clause in 1788. That's it. Uh, Jonathan, you have further? Sure, just a, a couple quick comments. First, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Rick's view on preemption, but I think in this context we have to remember that when we're talking about the background legal rules against which compacts are entered, um, and those being what we used to characterize as federal common law, uh, we're not talking about preemption, we're talking about displacement. And the Supreme Court has made clear that the threshold for displacing the background of federal common law is far lower. Uh, you don't need an affirmative policy, you merely need a presence. So in American Electric Power versus Connecticut, Supreme Court held the existence of the Clean Air Act precludes uh, interstate uh, federal common law actions for trans transboundary air pollution uh, without regard for whether or not the Clean Air Act is actually regulating or controlling or, to use Rick's formulation, actually embodies or has an affirmative policy with regard to those sources of pollution. The mere federal presence in the field 
um, displaces. And so if, if, if we want to think about um, uh, compacts in, within this framework, it seems to me displacement is where the doctrine points us to not preemption. Uh, and in that context, um, even the, the Trump administration's anti-policy with regard to climate change uh, would be sufficient. Um, uh, but uh, be that as it may, I, 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 that's one concern I'd have. The second concern I would have uh, with regard to enforceability is, yes, it is certainly true. Quebec cannot go to court uh, to try and enforce these agreements uh, against uh, California uh, under the Western Climate Initiative. Same thing is true with the Northeastern states uh, and the RGGI. Um, but uh, what two, two dynamics that I think uh, are important to consider is one is California's involvement in these agreements does alter the relative positions of firms within California. That is to say, uh, uh, firms' assets and liabilities are affected uh, by the fact that California has entered into this agreement and that some firms will avail themselves of trading with uh, uh, Quebec credits and some will not. Uh, and insofar as California is going to enforce its own laws against private firms in California uh, with reference to their participation or refusal to participate in trades that are facilitated by this compact, uh, I do think that that uh, should be relevant in the compact clause analysis. Secondly, uh, we all know that that when one looks at this policy in the context of California's other climate policies, that California is essentially uh, working to set up a, a, a framework where it says to other states, if you want to play with us, if you want access to our mar markets on the same terms as our domestic firms, you're going to want to enter into agreements with us. And um, the ability to uh, have these agreements um, that puts private firms both within California and outside of California in that position, I do think raises the sorts of concerns uh, to which the compacts cl compact clause speaks. Uh, and so it's not simply a question of whether or not Quebec or Ontario can go into court. Uh, the question is whether or not California is using the existence of these agreements as a way of shifting uh, the burdens or reallocating the burdens it imposes upon firms, uh, both within, within the state and whether it affects the relative position of firms within the state and those out of the state. And if it implicates those sorts of things, I do think the compact clause should be on the table. Other specific comments right now, or should we head to questions? I have a couple while we're waiting for others. By the way, I'm once again going to read this is an unusual format. If you want to ask a question, uh, you can do so by commenting on YouTube or Facebook live streams with your first name, school, and question. Um, um, anybody else, or shall I fire away with? I think I'll I'll fire away. Okay, uh, one one question. This may be naive, but it's something which has puzzled me. It seems to it. Uh, I always assumed the, the the a lot of the purpose of the compact clause wasn't about the federal government. It was about you know. Uh, uh, California and Nevada getting together in some way to do something that would hurt, you know, other neighboring states or compete more effectively with other neighboring states. I don't have a specific example, but I've got to believe there there are plenty of them, and it, do, it doesn't. We don't even have to pick on California in this case. Um, so, uh, 
what is the status of that? Is that is that a legitimate you know is is that is that a legitimate concern? Um, as a uh, and if so, what's the response to that? And I I could point this to Rick since he's the uh, um, but probably any of you could handle this. But why don't we start with Rick? Oh sure, Gene. Um, yeah, I think that the original purpose of the Compact Clause was precisely to protect states from each other, and that's what Jay says in Federalist Number Five. The real worry, if you ask me was that the Westerners, who are primarily Scots-Irish and were a rough bunch, <laughs> would um, make an alliance with Spain to get access to the Mississippi River. The Spanish treaty was being debated at the time, right when the Constitution was being ratified, and that was a constant controversy in the 1780s, that if you were sort of a backwoodsman in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, um, or in the Kentucky District of Virginia, you wanted access to the Mississippi, and you thought Eastern elites were trying to make you go across the Atlantic so they could monopolize trade. And so you wanted either to have enough military force to take the Mississippi, or you wanted the feds to make a treaty with Mississippi. Um, there were constant um, ac actions by Westerners, like Daniel Boone himself, and later by Aaron Burr, to separate the West and make an alliance with the Spain, uh, with Spain so that um, the Westerners could get access to the Mississippi. That's why Aaron Burr was tried for treason. He was actually scheming with Western political figures to uh, separate part of the United States, or so he was accused of doing. That's what they were worried about. Um, put simply, they were worried about treason, which of course betrays other states. I mean, if you take away the Western half of the nation, the Eastern states lose their access to the Mississippi, among other things. Um, and so, yeah, that was a worry. Um, I just point out that it was a worry um, that is on a scale totally different than the kind of worries that we're concerned with here. Um, for low-level interstate externalities, I think ordinary lawmaking processes, what I think Michael calls very nicely um, the principle of supremacy, works very well, which is let the states act, let the feds react. There's no need to have pre-approval of policies that in some sense might be costly in an interstate sense. Captain C, um, look, Rick is obviously right about the um, the historical uh, backdrop. Um, I just want to sort of widen the lens a little. Look, um, there are lots of federations that will, I mean, in fact, almost all of them, as, as far as I can see, that will simply prohibit side deals. Even the EU does not permit its member states to make side deals either with each other or with foreign nations. Um, that's in the European treaties. So it, it, it seems to me that there is sort of a structural worry uh, that one ought to be a little um, sensitive to. And I think the compact clause uh, reflects that. And it, it just, just one more uh, thing, the, the, the founders weren't just concerned about sort of treason and alliances, although Rick is entirely right that that was a major concern. Um, they were also concerned about trade wars because they'd seen them. Um, and so the compact clause, to my mind, is of a piece with the Constitution's injunctions against tariffs, um, against debtor relief laws, and, and the like. Any, any reactions to that? Because it does seem to me that's a, a, a fairly sharp difference. Um, Jonathan, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm more with with Michael on this point. I think when one looks at climate policy, and one, if one 
thinks about the implications of relaxed enforcement of the Dormant Commerce Clause combined with uh, relaxed enforcement or non-enforcement of the Compact Clause, you have a, a problem or a scenario where uh, especially like California w- could or would move in the direction of what would look like a trade war, what would operate like a trade war, but in the context of uh, energy policy and climate policy. We already see with state level climate policies that states adopt renewable portfolio standards or other measures that uh, on the one hand are designed to produce some environmental benefits, but then are written in a way so as to privilege particularly powerful in-state industries uh, at the expense of others. Uh, and states' ability to do, th- do that sort of thing are states' ability to do that sort of thing are constrained by the fact that they can only do that within their own state uh, and insofar as they try and discriminate against out-of-state uh, out-of-state actors, at least for now, the Dormant Commerce Clause steps in. Uh, if states can use compacts as a way of, of, in effect, getting around those Dormant Commerce Clause limitations, uh, then we do, I think, uh, see a significant risk of balkanizing energy markets uh, by uh, more states doing what California is trying to do, or simply California inducing more states to adopt uh, California uh, sympathetic policies. Uh, and I, I think that's a real concern. Um, and uh, maybe uh, this will, will simply induce the federal government to finally adopt a rational climate policy. I, I would love to believe that, uh, but I'm, I'm not overly optimistic that it will play out that way. Uh, and I think that the structural implications uh, of allowing states to act that way are, are concerning. Rick, you have anything else you want to add? Or? Yeah, um, I, I just want to um, note that I agree with Jonathan that privileging in, in-state industries um, through some kind of discriminatory policy is, first of all, a bad thing. And second of all, is adequately addressed by the Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, I don't see how a compact or the fact of an agreement um, somehow will enable states to get around the Dormant Commerce Clause with a discriminatory policy that they could not otherwise pass. There's no doctrine in the Dormant Commerce Clause that says, but oh, if you actually write in a document and have the governor shake hands on it, um, that this is part of a interstate coordination compact contract. Therefore, the ordinary rules against um, protectionism and privileging in-state interests somehow fall aside. So I just say, let the ordinary anti-discrimination doctrines do their work. The existence of a coordination policy or the fact that one state takes into account legal facts or actual facts in another jurisdiction, that seems to me irrelevant to the privileging point. Let me put this in a sharper way. There are many interstate compacts that I think actually get rid of protectionism. So, for instance, some states want to make a deal with other states on reciprocity of bar recognition. Arizona will say to Florida, look, if you recognize our attorney's license when they come to Florida to practice, we'll recognize your attorney's license. And, of course, they want to be reciprocal because they don't want to be a chump and have Florida bar licenses recognized in Arizona, but then poor Arizona lawyers who go to Florida can't appear in court. Well, that's a deregulatory compact, in my view. That's a good thing. And if more states go on to that, we can get rid of some of these absurd occupational licensing structures that are preventing Americans from moving across state boundaries. So I just think it's orthogonal to the question of protectionism, whether a compact exists. 
Some compacts are deregulatory, some are regulatory, some are discriminatory and protectionist, some are actually not. Let's just forget the fact that a governor got together with another governor, shook hands, had a ribbon cutting, smiled for the camera, and said, hey, we're going to coordinate our policies. That fact to me should be utterly constitutionally irrelevant. If I could just jump back in, I guess my question for Rick would be is, is as follows. As a theoretical matter, certainly requiring congressional approval of interstate compacts, say, bar reciprocity, uh, would increase the transaction costs of entering into such agreements. Uh, governors and states might be less likely to try and negotiate such agreements if they are uncertain whether or not Congress would approve. So I, I, I recognize that as a, as a theoretical point. But as a practical matter, uh, I don't think we see much evidence that states have been reluctant to enter into those sorts of agreements because they need to get congressional approval. I think the history of compacts is that when states are looking for reciprocity on licensing, the various agreements about you know prison capacity sharing and um, the agreements historically we've seen with water, um, they haven't worried about congressional approval. And so I'm just not sure why requiring congressional approval uh, poses uh, much of a risk to uh, the sorts of deregulatory or efficiency enhancing compacts uh, that I think Rick and I would agree we'd like to see states engage in. Is there a question about whether states are, uh, that the line might be when states are doing something which hurts other states? I mean, it's hard to say a reciprocity agreement between two states on bar admission really, I mean, I suppose it slightly injures other states, but not in a significant way. But uh, could, could, there be, uh, could there be a line there? And then Rick, I guess, is suggesting the, law, the, the problem of hurting other states is covered, um, uh, is, is already you know, covered in other ways. Is that, is that fully satisfactory or are there potential problems there? Uh, it's been a while, uh, in, and Rick may know this better than I do. Um, it's been a while since I looked at these cases, but in some compact uh, clause cases uh, that were litigated, there seem to be suggestions to the effect that reciprocity agreements are somehow different from sort of compacts that ought to trouble us. So Northeast Bank Corp is a f famous case. That was, in fact, a reciprocity case where the court then found that under a congressional statute, um, uh, states uh, have been authorized by Congress to enter into compacts with respect to uh, certain branch banking activities. A and I'm inclined to think that that line between reciprocity agreements on the one hand and regulatory compacts on another is probably defensible. I'll just say one more thing. Uh, I also agree with Rick that there are troublesome um, uh, state protectionist activities that don't fall under the compact clause. Um, and those have, uh, I mean, th those cases have been litigated and they haven't gone very well. This is, Jonathan, you may remember this, Rocky Mountain Farmers Cooperative, right? Which arose over a California policy that effectively attempts to regulate energy production in Brazil and other places. Um, that's been upheld under uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause and the Supreme Court denied cert. Um, not all is well in that particular corner of the legal universe, to my mind. Uh, we have a question from uh, 
uh, from Matt uh, asking, was there backlash from anti-federalists or others against the compact clause during the de debate about the Constitution? Oops, sorry, no, because the compact clause was already in the Articles of Confederation. Um, just a friendly amendment to what Michael said. Um, the Articles of Confederation, Articles 6 and 9, do have a lot of language about not making treaties with foreign states. They're actually, to my knowledge, I might be misremembering this, the idea that states couldn't make agreements or contracts with each other was missing from Article 6. That was added. Um, I can call it up here, um, but it, my memory is gone. Ever since I turned 50, uh, <laughs> I've been losing. The proper nouns went first, and now specific constitutional language. I can't remember that either. I'm yeah. ashamed. I'll but, look it up, too. Yeah, but I will say this. Um, there is utter silence about this clause. And indeed, anti-federalists of them, um, you know, we talk about anti-federalists as if they were a political party. But I think Pauline Meyer is absolutely correct to say there was no group called the anti-federalists except by their enemies. Anti-federalist was an insult that was devised by federalists to apply to the hodgepodge of opponents of the Constitution, ranging from very moderate people like Edmund Randolph, who eventually came around to support the Constitution, to eccentrics like Luther Martin, who actually became a Federalist. Samuel Chase and Luther Martin both became Federalists right after ratification. Most anti-Federalists, so-called anti-Federalists, joined Jefferson and Madison. So um, there is utter consensus among the anti-Federalists that getting rid of um, um, obstructions to commerce, like the export clause, are utterly fine. You see no complaints from them on that score. That just wasn't a controversy. They were very worried about the Supreme Court being judge of law and fact. They were terrified of the necessary and proper clause. Um, they hated the idea of direct taxes. They thought that the taxing clause should be narrowed. They had a whole litany of various complaints, but one thing they never said anything about was Article 1, Section 10, for the simple reason that nobody was really thinking that it would be a good idea for the Western states to break off and form a separate confederation. Um, uh, Daniel asks, uh, is an action by Congress considered tacit consent to an interstate compact? Sorry, the, the question is what, what happens if Congress just sits there and does nothing? Yeah, yeah, it, it is, an, is an action by Congress, which is sitting there and doing nothing, considered tacit consent to an interstate compact. Uh, no, I don't think so. However, it, 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 my recollection is that the um, the court has been quite permissive in finding congressional uh, consent. So, for example, it can be implied. Um, that was the Northeast Bank Corp case. Uh, Congress can prospectively authorize contacts as it's done um, with respect to uh, certain interstate compacts that have to deal deal with um, have to do with um, crime control, traffic um, uh, arrangements, that sort of thing. So Congress has, it, it isn't the case that um, Congress has to expressly, affirmatively um, consent to any compact. It's not boundless uh, the way in which Congress can, um, uh, uh, can authorize um, compacts, but it has a wide latitude. 
I'll step in. I'll step in briefly to again as a friendly amendment to say as early as Green versus Biddle, which is a boundary recognition case involving Kentucky. Um, basically, um, Kentucky broke away from Virginia with the consent of the Virginia legislature, pursuant to an agreement between the people of Kentucky and Virginia. And the question arose whether this agreement, which recognized the property rights of Virginians who were living in Kentucky under Virginia law, where this agreement was uh, illegal compact. Um, and the court says, well, you know, Congress has consented to this agreement by admitting Kentucky into the union. Now, Congress never said, hey, and by the way, we approve of, you know, the particular details of the deal that was made between Kentucky and Virginia. It's true that the part of that deal was put into the Kentucky Constitution that was sent to Congress for ratification. Um, but it was after the fact, and it wasn't really focused on the fact that this was a compact. And so one way you can get around the clause, if you don't like my, if it ain't enforceable in a court, it ain't a compact, is also, if Congress doesn't say anything, hey, that's approval. In which case, supremacy and pre-approval collapse into each other. And I'd say that would be great. Um, uh, uh, I, I wanted to ask oh, uh, so one other question on the on, on the, the specific uh, uh, trend. Um, Aaron asks, do you think there may be more discussion about the compact clause related to interstate agreements around the coronavirus response or other pandemic measures? Um, my guess is because it would be deeply politically embarrassing for anyone to interfere with subnational policymaking on the coronavirus, um, that it will be hard to find a plaintiff, especially a plaintiff withstanding. Um, I can't imagine that the Trump administration wants to send the Department of Justice in to say, hey, Mike DeWine of Ohio, you're cooperating too much with the governors in neighboring states to make sure that you can monitor this disease. We got to stop that. I mean, that's just not happening. And I think actually the political process takes care of a huge amount of this stuff. Um, it's just really embarrassing to say to the states, you can't do something when governors um, agree. Now, I would say that the one kind of interstate compact that nobody's objecting to is the National Governors Association, the National Conference of State Legislatures, the National League of Cities. All of these involve agreements by various state governments to set up an intergovernmental organization. Why don't they violate the compact clause? And one answer is because they're bipartisan and the moment the federal government goes in there and says, oh, we think that this is illegal and Congress has to approve, you have to get a federal charter, say, before Congress, is the moment that everybody rolls their eyes and says, aha, this is a really dumb clause if that's what it means. If, if I could jump in on that though, I mean, I, I think, you know, agreement, certainly I think means legally binding agreement. If the National Governors Association meets and comes up with um, a way of, say, dealing with um, disposal of low-level radioactive waste uh, among all of the various states, and they vote accord in accordance with their bylaws uh, that this agreement should apply uh, and this will uh, determine what states have to do to have access to disposal capacity in other states, um, that's not going anywhere unless Congress approves it, unless Congress enacts that into law or approves it as a compact, uh, that agreement will not be binding. 
the agreement that matters is not did we agree to sit in a room and, and talk about something and hold a vote? The agreement is whether or not there's something that is legally binding on us as states, or I would argue uh, on our citizens. Um, and as we know, uh, in the example of the hypothetical I'm giving, Congress did try and approve uh, that agreement um, and did approve some amount of interstate compacts with regard to low-level radioactive waste. It, it went too far and, and part of what the National Governors Association wanted was struck down in New York versus United States. But the agreement that's relevant is not, we're gonna sit in a room and talk and share information. It's, we are going to bind ourselves in terms of how we either treat each other or, and I think this is sometimes left out of discussions of the compact clause, how we are going to treat the citizens and firms that operate within our jurisdictions. Um, I'm going to add just one thing there, directly responsive, Jonathan. I think there's a big question here. Maybe this is responsible for it's not. It might not rise to the level of a disagreement, but maybe just a misunderstanding about how we use terms. I think that if a state adopts a domestic law inspired by some kind of coordination or agreement or discussion, that that doesn't mean that the agreement is being enforced. Let me give you an example. If the Uniform Law Commission comes up with something called the Uniform Commercial Code and says, we think this is a great law, we hope state legislatures will adopt it. And then later, California adopts the Uniform Commercial Code. That is not California's making the ULC a lawmaker or entering into an agreement with the OLC or anything like that. Same with the Model Penal Code. Same with the National Governors Association coming up with a device for allocating low-level radioactive waste. If that has to be sent back, that agreement, to each state legislature, and each state legislature has to ratify it, it's not the agreement that's enforceable, it's the state legislation. So if the NGA says, hey, hey, old governors, we want you to make a pledge. It's not an enforceable pledge, it's just morally binding, if you will. How many waste sites will you take? And they all say, okay, fine, we'll all take so many waste sites. And then each of those governors goes back to their respective state legislatures and says, okay, guys, I want you to vote on this recommendation. Oh, and by the way, one reason to do it is I made this promise. And they all approve an allocation of waste sites. I don't think that there's been any binding compact. It's true that maybe the fact that the governors got together and, you know, um, made promises to each other could have influence on the state legislatures in adopting the laws, but the laws, the domestic state laws, are entirely both necessary and sufficient for anything being enforced against private citizens. I mean, so the private citizens should not be heard to complain, oh, I'm being subject to an interstate compact. The answer is no, you're being subject to California law that was influenced by a lot of things. And the fact that it was influenced by something two governors said, or the governor of California and the premier of Quebec said, um, is irrelevant any more than if it were adopted because the Uniform Law Commission said this is a good idea or the American Law Institute said it's a good idea. So my, I have a very narrow view of enforceability um, and I think that might be responsible for the reason why I don't think there's anything enforceable when a firm in California is subject to cap and trade rules that are based upon facts in Quebec, facts that are only legally relevant purely because of California domestic law. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with everything Rick said, I think, except for the last sentence, um, because I don't think that's really, it really captures what's occurring in uh, with the Western Climate Initiative uh, or what would have been relevant in the context of radioactive waste. Uh, we completely agree about uniform laws, about states uh, following each other, 
about about state political leaders um, using the fact of an agreement with one another as a way of inducing political support for the adoption of uniform rules or rules that replicate what exists in other states. Where I think we're in complete agreement there. I think the issue becomes if California says to firms within California, you may buy credits in Quebec, you may not buy credits in Texas, or New York says to its um, uh, to its uh, uh, firms or to out-of-state firms that whether or not they are allowed to dispose of waste in a particular way or in a particular place is dependent upon whether or not New York is in an agreement with that other jurisdiction. And that, I believe, is the dynamic of the Western Climate Initiative. Uh, and if it's not the dynamic of the Western Climate Initiative, then it is nothing but window dressing. It is nothing but a PR exercise. That is to say, if the Western Climate Initiative, in fact, is helping firms within California reduce their costs of compliance by expanding the market in which they can purchase credits, then it is, in fact, saying to firms, uh, you get to trade with Quebec, but you don't get to trade with Texas. That affects the relative position of firms within California, that affects the relative burdens they operate under from a compliance standpoint. And it is not merely cognizant of facts in Quebec. It is based on an agreement with Quebec about what is going to be uh, complied with and what is not. Um, the exact same agreement with a Texas firm uh, would not be accepted, but the Quebec firm will. Why? Because California has entered into the agreement with Quebec and not Texas. Uh, and, and I do think that makes it different from everyone agreeing we're going to have the same rules about the bar exam or about um, the Uniform Commercial Code or uh, protocols for waste disposal. I'm just, I, 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 I agree with Jonathan. I'd like to ask Rick a question. Um, do you think the tobacco agreement is a compact? Because that, look, they tried to force that through Congress. It failed. Then they did it on their own, right? And the, the reason why they initially thought they had to go to Congress was there were very severe antitrust problems or would be if it weren't for this idiotic Parker Doctrine. Um, but that agreement um, has its own enforcement machinery, um, the NAG, it has arbitration provisions, it's enforceable, all the rest of it. Do we think that that is a compact or not even that qualifies? Well, you know, Michael, I'm an extremist in this respect. Um, I was happy with the MSA um, not being approved. Um, and the reason is I have a very narrow view, again, of what it means for something to be enforceable as an agreement. Um, so if Mississippi enters into a deal with a group of tobacco companies and says, look, um, we're suing you, we think we can get a judgment of, say, a billion dollars or 200 million, a lot of money. Um, and the tobacco companies say, geez, um, we sure want to settle that. We don't want to be pecked to death, not by a thousand ducks, but by a thousand giant ducks. Um, and they enter into an agreement. I see that as exactly the kind of agreement that is necessary to make interstate jurisdiction work. Um, so, you know, now if they say we want this agreement to settle everything once and for all, and so we want to get all the plaintiffs and all the defendants into a single room, again, I think that's just an extension of normal litigation. I think I mentioned that I said um, once you have a Supreme Court manage original jurisdiction disputes between the states, 
it's really silly to say, oh, we have to have Congress approve their settlement agreements. Um, and so given that the federal courts are already supervised, supervising the MSA, um, I just don't really see any um, practical reason why um, we need to then queue up in front of Congress. Now you might say, well, gee, but there were antitrust problems and so forth. Fine, challenge it under the antitrust statute. That's just preemption. And it might be that Parker should be narrowly construed. Maybe it should be broadly construed. I'm happy to you know, discuss that, but that's entirely separate from the fact that they happen to enter into an agreement. Or put another way, if you went up to RJR or any tobacco company and said, guess what, guys, I'm going to do you a big favor. I'm going to make it more difficult um, for the states to get together and make a single state settlement with you. They would run screaming from you because as soon as you did that, each state would say, fine. I'm re- Florida's going to say, I got a billion dollar judgment. I'm just going to go in for the kill. That's like getting rid of bankruptcy courts to coordinate a, a, a bankrupt debtor's estate. You're not doing them any favors. Um, Congress at that time was so gridlocked because tobacco was, the tobacco stuff had been um, painted as sort of a plaintiff's lawyer, a plaintiff's boondoggle. Congress wasn't going to approve anything that um, the, the states were going to enter into. And if there had been no MSA, there simply would have been um, a um, destruction of the tobacco companies through individual litigation. And so I just don't, this is one of the, this is, it precisely encapsulates why I don't see why anybody would think that the fact of an agreement makes cartels or loading costs onto consumers or whatever else you might object to in the MSA worse. Because they're still going to load the costs onto the consumers if they get a judgment, a billion dollar judgment, and foreclose on all the assets that they get their hands on. Um, We have a question from Christopher at BYU. uh, who said it was mentioned any agreement or compact borders on absurdity. Um, I don't think that's exactly what he meant, but uh, but he was referring to that comment. And he says, but the language was approved and ratified. Doesn't that inc- indicate the founders intended broad congressional power? Yes, I believe that's right. Um, and the word any in there, I mean, as, as I've readily conceded, any can't mean any. You have to have a theory of this. Um, but I think the uh, what the clause quite clearly um, illustrates is the founder's particular fear of state compacts. And so I'd be nervous about a, um, a, a reading of the clause that basically renders the, the clause a nullity. I don't think you should read any clause out of the Constitution. Um, this is a good question for um, people who teach both constitutional law and statutory interpretation, as I do. As everybody knows, there's an absurdity canon in statutory interpretation. If the application of a statutory term leads to an absurdity, courts can narrowly construe it or rewrite it. Um, and even John Manning, uh, Dean Manning of Harvard Law School, who's a big textualist, grudgingly concedes that that is actually the official doctrine. He wants to change it, of course, um, because he's a super textualist. I am not a super textualist. um, And I think if that's good for statutory interpretation, I'm not sure why it shouldn't be good for constitutional interpretation. Um, And so um, I have no problem saying that if there's broad sweeping language that if taken literally leads to an absurdity, then it's perfectly appropriate to adjust the interpretation of that language to avoid the absurdity. We do that all the time. Indeed, Blackstone, said that that was the appropriate way of proceeding in his commentaries on the law. If it was good enough for Blackstone, it was good enough for the framers. I, I would say, I think, I mean, I think there's another way to, to come at this. That is to say, you know, we, we generally understand that we understand words 
in their context. And so the word agreement uh, means different things in different contexts. And in this context, I think it's it's pretty clear that compact or any compact or agreement means uh, the sorts of uh, agreements that involve state exercise uh, of their sovereign power. Uh, it's not two governors agreeing to go to dinner. A, that's not an agreement between the states. That's an agreement between governors. Um, two, um, uh, there's not an exercise of sovereign power. And so I don't think we need to resort to absurdity uh, uh, doctrine. I don't think we need to uh, worry about these uh, hypotheticals that, that Congress needs to give permission for there to be a National Governors Association. The question is whether or not states in the exercise of their sovereign power are entering into uh, some sort of binding uh, arrangement uh, that affects the exercise of their their sovereign power uh, on their citizens and the citizens of each other, uh, and I think that it makes full, you know, gives full meaning to the constitutional text. Doesn't require us to resort to something like the absurdity doctrine, uh, and allows us to uh, identify what sorts of things are covered and what sorts of things are not. Um, let, we, we've uh, had a wonderful discussion, and uh, but we have not yet touched uh, and and uh, a good theoretical discussion. We've avoided so far the hottest political issues. Um, let's touch on one. Um, what uh, do we make of the uh, uh, the the, pop, the popular vote compact efforts of quite a number of states? Uh, to say that, well, if uh, we're all going to agree, if uh, somebody wins the popular vote, we're going to have our electors vote for that person, regardless of uh, who won our individual state. What do we make of that compact? I'll have to start. Um, uh, I think that um, it certainly would implicate the compact clause uh, because it not only uh, affects uh, the relative power of states vis-a-vis -vis each other. Uh, it affects um, the balance of power among presidential electors who are uh, uh, involved in, in the process. It affects, I believe, the, the relative power of the House um, uh, in presidential elections. Uh, I think uh, Derek Mueller, um, uh, who was then of Pepperdine, I guess, who will now be of Iowa, has written a couple articles on this, uh, pointing out that uh, even under the relatively lax standards of existing compact clause jurisprudence, uh, this has to be understood as the sort of compact that would require congressional approval. Uh, he goes farther uh, to even raise questions about whether or not Congress could approve it. Um, but but setting that question aside, I think I think he is correct on that point. As a practical matter, I would just note um, one irony of um, the National Popular Vote Compact is if you look at the states that are members. Of, uh, of it right now, or those states that have um, endorsed the National Popular Vote Compact, uh, the lar they, they, it includes several very large blue states. And, and so uh, currently, um, if this were to be invoked and were to matter, uh, it would be in a scenario in which, say, that the popular vote goes with one um, uh, candidate, let's say the voters of California uh, who has ratified this uh, go with the other candidate. And despite the vote of the people of California, California's electors would be obligated to go with the popular vote winner. Uh, and I think that that political dynamic is 
perhaps the opposite of the one that many proponents of the National Popular Vote Compact have in mind. It won't surprise you, of course, that I disagree with Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and I'll, I'll see his Derek Mueller, who I great, greatly admire, and raise him in Akhil Amar, who says the NPV initiative is just fine. Um, but putting all that aside, um, my basic view is that coordination is not an enforceable agreement. As long as one state's law is what triggers um, any change in the legal status quo within that state, the fact that that law is contingent on other states doing things um, or is triggered by other states doing things or takes recognition of facts, legal facts or actual you know, physical facts in other states seems to me irrelevant. Um, and given that each state can allocate their electoral votes as they please, um, the fact that they do so by taking note of other states allocating their electoral votes in a particular way does not, to me, rise to the level of an enforceable agreement. The NPV initiative would be illegal if one state who had allocated their electoral votes in some way could bring a lawsuit against another state who breached the agreement and thereby get some kind of remedy. But that is not how the NPV initiative works. And therefore, since it's not an enforceable agreement, it's not an agreement. To nobody's great surprise, I disagree with Rick on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Look, like the, the, the one of the points that the Supreme Court has emphasized, despite its laxity in this area, is that agreements become suspect if they do more than what individual states could achieve um, on, acting on their own. And I believe that's true of the tobacco settlement and it's true of the national popular vote um, initiative. What this does is what the what the NPV effectively does is render the votes of the non-compacting states irrelevant and states acting on their own could never achieve that because, you know, it, it individually um, moving to uh, a national popular vote arrangement within your state is like committing suicide. May I take a little bit of issue with that and just press you on that, uh, Michael, though? Imagine that a nonprofit, a 501c3, um, got together and like the Uniform Law Commission said, we think this is a great idea. We think this would be a better way of allocating electoral votes. And they promulgated shares, rules for allocating electoral votes, state specific, and they put it up on a website. And then various state legislatures said, hey, I like that. Um, and they started logging into the website because the website has a blog. And they said, what do other state legislatures think of this? And somebody from Missouri says, hey, great idea. And somebody says, Colorado says, thumbs up. And say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna go back to my home state and I'm gonna propose that this is how we allocate electoral votes. But I sure wanna know um, that um, something like that's gonna happen in your state. And the people from Missouri says, don't worry, partner. Um, I'm, I'm with you on this one. So far, I assume that if they each go back to their respective states and propose legislation respecting electoral votes, there's no problem. Now, it's true that the website and the 501c3 and the coordination gave them the power to do things, gave them the confidence to do things that they would not otherwise have. 
But that kind of enabling does not seem to me to be any different than when the Uniform Law Commission says, we think this is a great law, and other states say, oh, that's nifty. Um, you've sold us. If, if I could do a, a follow-up question on this, what, what, let's take even the last election, um, which presumably this would have switched the result on if you had enough states on this. Um, would you, aside from the, the legal part of this, would you have situations where, because it's unsure which states will actually follow what they've said they're going to do, and maybe ones will have disputes about whether they follow it or not, do you create the possibility or even the likelihood that in such an election it becomes extremely unclear after you've counted all the votes who's actually won the election and, what, and who's going to be the next president? And is that a, is that a, should that be a concern? I would say it could be a concern, Gene, um, but it's not a concern that's exacerbated by or even really relevant to the existence of coordination among the states. You could have that concern simply because um, the law is unclear. And that might be a reason for Congress to exercise its Article One, Section 4 power to start thinking a little bit about regulating um, federal elections. Whether they have that power, given that Article 2 defines the Electoral College, is an interesting constitutional question. But again, one that's orthogonal to the question of the Compact Clause. Um, in general, I don't think the Compact Clause is a Sherman Antitrust Act for the states. The Sherman Antitrust Act would certainly prevent private entrepreneurs getting together and making an informal agreement or a conspiracy in restraint of trade. Um, but my feeling is that unless you have an enforceable contract, not simply a conspiracy or restraint, but a contract, um, you don't have a compact or contract um, within the meaning of Article 1, Section 10. I think there is actually a mechanism in the NPV um, proposals that is calculated to block states from um, withdrawing from the compact, at least for, uh, for, for a period of months. But I may be mistaken about that. Um, we have just a minute left. Uh, so anybody have any final quick comments? Only I was very happy to be here. Thanks for putting this together, Federalist Society, in these difficult times. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. That was fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, be well. Be safe. Thanks. Thanks to all of you uh, for for you know the slightly unusual format for having done done this very well. And uh, we are next panels at ten thirty. Thank you. Take care.